Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies with me, Tiasha Zaitz. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know I'm currently working on a documentary about medication-related patient safety. Thousands of deaths happen due to medication errors every year. It's quite hard to talk about exact numbers. Many of the estimates are based on 10 or 20 years old research. In the meantime, a digital health revolution happened and studies show that, for example, adverse drug events related to prescribing mistakes can be decreased by half with digitalization. At the same time, the U.S. is still going through an opioid crisis which significantly impacted the number of deaths related to medications. The currently often mentioned estimates are between 100 and 150,000 deaths annually in the US. In the UK, which has five times smaller population, a study by BMJ Quality and Safety from 2020 assessed that the number of deaths in the UK annually is 1,700. If you look at that number proportionally, that's not 5, but 12 times less than in the US. Many challenges are related to medication-related harm, patient adherence, challenges related to interactions when patients take several medications at the same time. Drug packaging can impact if you take the right drug or not. There's the unpredictability of the clinical environment and more. We will talk about all this on 29th of June with the premiere of the documentary featuring 10 speakers from across the world. And after the documentary, we will hear from an expert panel for a comment. During the premiere and the expert panel discussion, there will be a lot of time and opportunities for everyone to share their thoughts and experiences. You can already do so by joining the debate happening in the LinkedIn event page chat. Find more information with all the links in the show notes. But now, back to today's episode. Funding in technologies, especially software and healthcare, has been booming in the last few years. A very recent way of funding are so-called SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, that make it easier for companies to go public. In this episode, you're going to hear all the basics and the current state of SPACs in healthcare. I'm happy to announce that this episode is prepared in partnership with M-Health Israel. M-Health Israel, led by Levi Shapiro, recently organized a webinar about specs in healthcare. That session is now adapted for audio in this episode. This is a three-part episode. First, you're going to hear about what specs are, as explained by Keith Townsend from the law firm King & Spaulding. Then, Sari Kaganoff, the general manager at Rock Health will take you through the state of specs in healthcare. The two presentations are followed by a Q&A session. 
and the whole content is moderated by Jill Bash, digital health thought leader and managing partner at Finn Partners Marketing Agency. Just one remark before we begin. The content is heavily finance focused. If you're not close to economics, don't get discouraged if things start to sound complicated. Together, the presentations by Keith and Sari bring a comprehensive outline of specs and also the Q&A session is very nicely moderated by Jill Bash with questions to really bring clarity and understanding to the topic and its challenges. And now, let's start with Gil, who will start with the introduction of the two panelists. The concept of SPACs has suddenly hit the news. SPACs are not a new vehicle. They've been around, but suddenly they're getting our attention. We're going to find out from Sarah and Keith today exactly why they're so important, why they're particularly important for health innovators. And we're seeing this all over the place. We're seeing companies like the DNA testing startup 23andMe is considering a SPAC. Brent Saunders, who's the former chairman and CEO of Allergan, which was acquired by Abbott, has just launched a SPAC. It's completed its first acquisition, Vesper Healthcare Acquisition Corporation. SPACs are hot. Why? What do we do about them? Do you consider them? We're going to find out today from two really leading experts in the field. And I want to introduce them to you because you'll have an appreciation for the really the the depth and breadth of their experience. First, although she's presenting second, Keith Townsend is going to present from King and Spalding, will present first, and then Sari Kiganoff will present second. But I'll introduce Sari, old school, ladies before gentlemen, I'll introduce you first, and thank you very much for joining us today. So Sari is the general manager of consulting at Rock Health, and Rock Health is a very important. It's a very interesting organization. It's the first fund dedicated to digital health, venture capital, private equity. And I, I'm going to say, I'm going to venture also, it's a bit of an incubator as well. It's more than just funding. It's really giving organizations the the ideas and research they need to succeed. Asari spent years at McKinsey as being really one of their key people in the life science area. And she looked at digital data analytics, obviously with a focus on patient care. Her experience includes digital health, digital patient engagement, patient adherence, and leveraging the power of analytic insight to improve performance. In the health sector, these skills, her expertise, is needed more than ever before. And as a matter of fact, there are more than 100 companies right now across the gamut, including FDA and leading patient groups who have gathered together in an organization dedicated to decentralized clinical trials, harnessing all of the knowledge and experience that someone like Sari has to look at the future of clinical research. So Sari has a lot to offer here. She's going to be sharing with us her perspective on SPACs. Also, we have Keith Townsend. Keith is a partner. He's also the co-head of the public company practice group at King & Spalding. I've had the privilege of working with King & Spalding on a number of occasions, close to two decades. Exceptional organization. It's one of the great legal and public policy firms in the United States and around the world. They do quite a bit of business in Israel, as a matter of fact, as does Rock Health. Obviously, Israel is a really a 
global capital for health innovation. Now, Keith represents public and private companies that are looking at mergers, acquisitions, the capital markets, transactions, corporate governance, and he has led teams that deal with public company M&A transactions, including SPAC mergers. And he's going to talk a little bit about that today. He looks at stock-for-stock stock strategic mergers, tenders, cross-border transactions, cash mergers, divestitures, and much more. Asari and Keith, we are thrilled to have you with us today. Very appreciative. Keith, I'm going to turn this over to you. Bill, thank you for the introduction. And uh, thanks for to each of you for joining us. And, and as Gil suggested, what, what I'll do is lead us off with really a brief introduction and overview of the SPAC product. And I think that'll help frame the discussion because, sorry, then we'll take us from there and look at this through the lens of digital health. But just to, to kick us off, as Gil said, SPACs have really exploded in popularity. And if you look back, the SPACs aren't new, but what has happened over the course of the last two years has really been a sea change in SPACs. 2020 doubled the prior 10 years of activity combined. And so far in 2021, we've already surpassed what we did in all of 2020, which if you just think about where does that mean we are today, we have almost 430 SPACs with almost $140 billion of capital that are looking for acquisition targets all over the world. Now, what that statistic does not tell you is that there are over 275 additional SPACs that are currently going through the SEC process. So you can add that to the almost 430 that are already out there. And that adds up to a huge amount of capital that is chasing deals. Now, I wouldn't give you the complete picture if I didn't say, where, where are we now? The matter is, if you go back over the course of the last three weeks, we, we've we only had on average around you know 10 filings per week, new IPO filings. Whereas in February and March, we were averaging about 50 filings per week. What we saw in January, February, and March of this year was unprecedented. Things have slowed down dramatically in terms of new SPAC capital formation in April and so far in May. But I I do think that this 275 plus SPAC backlog will clear out and that many, if not most of those deals will get completed at some point during 2021, which means again, a lot of SPACs looking for deals, and there just are not enough targets in the United States to satisfy that supply. This isn't limited to one industry. And you know, while you can see that there's been a huge cluster of V battery type transactions, healthcare and digital health is another huge area for SPACs. And I think it will continue to be one that the markets will look to going forward. So what I want to do just for a few minutes is level set on what is a SPAC. And from the perspective of a company that might consider doing a transaction with a SPAC, what are the basics that you need to know? The building blocks to really evaluate, is this something that you might want to do? 
And I think in order to do that, it makes sense to think about a SPAC really in two phases of its life cycle. The first phase of the life cycle is really the SPAC itself completing an IPO. And it's important to understand that as a target because you need to really understand that vehicle at a pretty deep level to evaluate, is this a company that I want to merge with? Because as part of a SPAC transaction, you are, as a legal matter, merging with that entity. And then the second phase is obviously the merger itself, right? When the SPAC and the target come together and what is commonly referred to as a DSPAC transaction. And so really, when you think about the IPO, you've got three primary parties that are involved in the IPO transaction. The first is the SPAC itself, right? So the vehicle that's going to go public. The second is the SPAC sponsor or the group of individuals that are forming the SPAC to take it public. And then you've got the investing public the investors that are willing to invest in the IPO vehicle. And the economics are different for those uh, those parties. So for the SPAC sponsor, this can be a, a huge home run if the SPAC plays out and actually does a merger transaction because the SPAC sponsor typically is forming the vehicle with a nominal amount of capital. When you think about SPACs that are formed in the United States, typically the SPAC sponsor will invest somewhere in the order of magnitude of $25,000 in the SPAC. And they that entitles them to what is typically referred to as a promote. And that promote gives them essentially 20% of the ownership of the SPAC vehicle. They will then invest the at-risk capital basically the capital that is necessary to pay fees and expenses of the underwriters, meaning the investment banks, lawyers, accountants, and others that actually complete the IPO transaction. And for that, they will typically receive warrants. And so in the example that you see on the slide, they're investing $25,000 for the promote, and then they're investing roughly $8 million in warrants to fund those expenses. The rest of the capital for the SPAC really comes from an IPO. And the IPO investors, it's a great deal for them too. Um, Again, they're giving up 20% of the capital, but what they are buying for $10 per share um, is a unit. And the unit in a SPAC IPO consists of two things. It's one, a share of common stock uh, worth $10. And then secondly, it's a warrant. And in this case, these are typically warrants with a strike price of $11.50 or a strike with a $1.50 premium to the value of the common stock. And ultimately, the units will become separable and you'll have the share of common stock and the warrants, but the IPO investors get both. Now, the beauty of this for the IPO investors is they ultimately will get to vote on the transaction that the SPAC does. So if the SPAC identifies a merger target, the IPO investors get to vote and say, I want to do the deal or I don't want to do the deal. If they And if they so choose, they can have their stock redeemed. Okay, And it's redeemed for $10 a share. So basically, they can get their money back, but they get to hang on to the warrants. So even if they don't like the deal, They can still profit from the transaction because they are going to maintain their warrants if ultimately the SPAC gets sufficient votes to move forward with the transaction. 
So really, the dust settles after the IPO. You got the sponsor owning 20%. And in this scenario, you've got the IPO investors who put in $300 million. They then will go and find a target. And what happens as part of that process is the target and the SPAC will technically merge. And they will merge in a process that will, again, require a shareholder vote of the SPAC. And in most of these transactions, and I won't go through all of this, but we may cover some of it in the Q&A, a couple of things happen. First, the SPAC will identify the target. They will agree on a valuation. And then generally, they will memorialize that in a letter of intent. After a letter of intent is signed, the SPAC and the target will generally go together to the market and then try to raise a pipe. And when I say pipe, a private placement or a private investment in public equity. And it's like an IPO in reverse, because in the typical IPO, the very last thing you do is the roadshow. But in a pipe or in a SPAC transaction, you will do the roadshow for the pipe before you even announce your deal. It's actually done in a private way. And so the pipe typically will be a validation of the value that the SPAC has placed on the target. So that ultimately, when there is a public announcement, you'll be able to announce that the SPAC and the target have signed a merger agreement and that the SPAC and the target have raised money in a private placement. So it's a very solid deal. And then from there, the SPAC and the target will go through the SEC or the Security Exchange Commission registration process in the United States and seek the shareholder vote. Usually takes 60-ish days to go from letter of intent to getting the pipe done and signing a business combination agreement, and then roughly four months to get through the SEC process when you're really ready to go with the SPAC. Thanks so much, Keith. And I'm really happy you went first because my version of what is a SPAC was a lot dumber than that. But I'm going to focus really on what is happening in digital health specifically and also some of the trade-offs. If you are management of a startup or company that is privately held, how you would think about the SPACs. But before we get into that, I want to share a little bit about where this perspective is coming from to help you understand the framing. So Rock Health, as Gil mentioned, has been in the digital health space since 2010. There are three main parts to our business. On the one hand, we invest and seed in Series A digital health startups through our venture fund. We also convene the healthcare community around events such as Rock Health Summit, CEO Summit and others, as well as tracking a lot of data on the digital health landscape. So we've tracked since 2010, all of the US-based funding, private funding that has gone into digital health. So any company that's raised over $2 million, we have in our data sets. We also track mergers and acquisitions, as well as IPOs. And to the point that Gil was raising before, why has SPACs come on the radar? For us, it's really only come on the radar in the last year because we've, we are so focused on digital health. SPACs were nowhere in existence until the last nine months or so, but we'll get into that. And then the far side, we advise, we actually advise enterprise companies in healthcare on their digital health innovation. And part of this is really interesting for us because we've had a lot of enterprise companies, be they investors or even strategics that are saying, hey, what is this SPAC thing? Should I get in on this? Should I be doing this? Who should I target if I'm going to do that? And so we've been hearing it for a number of angles. So just to cover 
quick glance at what we'll cover today. Number one, the training wheels and what's a SPAC, although we don't really need to do much on that, given you've heard from Keith. Two, stepping on the gas. What has actually been happening in digital helps helps SPAC boom? Three, under the hood. What does it really mean for the sponsors and the targets? And then finally, where do we see the outlook going? So a couple of key facts to ground you. On the left, there have been 15 completed or announced SPAC mergers in digital health in 2020 and 2021. And actually, I think it's 16 now because of Science 37 that just announced this week. And that is significantly more than the IPO public exit activity. So SPACs have overtaken IPOs. Pretty interesting. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on here and what's a SPAC because now we know, but I will mention three things that we think are really important as you think about whether you should do a SPAC or not on either side of the table. The first thing is the time to acquire. SPACs generally have up to two years to carry out an acquisition before they have to return the funds to investors. And Keith, correct me if I'm wrong on any of these facts. But what that means is that not only is there a certain limited supply of companies, but there's also a time frame. So there's like a ticking time, I don't want to say time bomb, but a clock of when you need to do this by. And so that kind of tightens the pressure a little bit on when you can find your match. The second is the mandate to spend. SPACs are have to acquire a target company with a fair market value of at least 80% of their funds called the trust value. Again, this kind of constrains them around that they can raise pipe and extra money, but they actually can't go too small because it kind of makes things complicated, although they can, in some cases, buy more than one company. In general, they actually have to spend the money they've raised. And then the other point that Keith already made, where given especially a lot of the activity in recent months, the SEC has started to release guidance around scrutinizing SPACs more. So that will probably cool things down a little and also make people make the trade-off between a SPAC and an IPO a little different. So just a bit of context on where this is all coming from. Funding invested in private companies, so startups essentially, that have raised over $2 million. And what is obviously a huge explosion in money pouring into digital health. Back 2013, it was around $2 billion in the year. And in 2020, $14 billion, which is obviously a huge explosion over the prior year's highs. Why this is so important is that as investors put money into digital health, they want it back out, right? They want to return on investment. And the way to mostly get return on investment is either, well, the dream for most companies is to become is to IPO and to exit. The other option is to be acquired either through a SPAC or a private M&A placement. But the more money going in, the more there's an expectation that people want to get that money out. So what's been happening? And here uh, we're looking at what's really been happening in digital health. 2017, 2018, and 2016, I believe as well, were what we call the digital health IPO drought. There were no IPOs in that time frame at all. And people were like, is this industry dead? But turns out, no, it wasn't dead. So 2019, six IPOs, 2026 as well. And that's when we started to see the SPACs. Two SPACs in digital health in 2020. And all of a sudden, 2021, you had, depending on when you make the slide, I think it's around 16 now, completed or announced SPACs, or I guess it would be um, 14 for the year and 16 total, and only two IPOs. So really a huge amount of SPAC activity, particularly in digital health. And that's definitely why we picked up our heads, even in the Q3 and 4 of 2020, and we were like, what is this SPAC thing? Let's find out. And so that's why we're talking about it today. And here's a just like a more visual representation of this. Some of the companies 
On the top are the IPOs that have happened in Digital Health, and on the bottom are the SPAC mergers. The colorful logos are the ones that have been completed, and the grays are the, the announced but not completed. What is interesting across the bottom, you can see, is actually some of the SPAC sponsors. So among those 427 that Keith mentioned, many of them actually, most of them state their intended focus areas. And in this particular case, a number of companies have either explicitly said they're focused on digital health or that it's obvious given who their founders were, like the few previous founders of the um, executive team at Livongo, for example where everyone is assuming that's what they're going to do. So there have been quite a number of companies explicitly stating that they're looking for digital health targets. This kind of raised that question that Keith also mentioned, supply versus demand. How are we thinking about it? But before we get to there, we're going to look a little bit at the difference between companies that have gone public through an IPO versus through a SPAC. So we looked at all of the digital health companies that have gone public in 2020 and 2021, or who have announced this back. And we see two notable differences in the companies. Number one, the uh, average funding that had gone into these companies prior to the IPO or the SPAC, their venture capital raised up to that point. And the companies going public through the IPO is 227 million on average. And in those going through SPAC, it was 171 million on average. And similarly, you see a difference in the age of the company. The ones that had gone public through an IPO were on average 15 years old, believe it or not. There are companies that old in digital health. And then those through SPAC were around 10 years old. And so we're definitely seeing, I don't want to pass judgment on this, but you definitely see that the companies going public through a SPAC are less mature and less well-funded than those who'd gone public through an IPO. Let me get to that wonderful question of supply and demand. And I actually call demand the SPAC sponsors or the the SPACs because they are literally demanding something. They're looking for something. And supply is the number of companies available for acquisition. And the way we did this is we looked at the companies that had a specific statement that they are focused on healthcare. Now, actually, of the companies we could find, 69 stated a focus on healthcare, but some of those were like healthcare and tech and consumer and like tons of stuff. And we discounted those, even though it is possible that some of those will actually go for healthcare. But the ones that are in the 52 have only healthcare related terms. So they'll say life sciences, healthcare IT, digital health, et cetera, only healthcare related. And there are 52 of those currently not announced yet. So just literally the ones that have already IPO'd. So then we said, okay, if we're going to assume that the companies they're going to acquire are going to look similar to the ones that have already spacked, how many of those are there? And what we find is there are 56 companies in digital health available that have raised over $170 million in total private funding. So I would take a risk on saying I think there's a bit of a supply-demand mismatch, although I will admit that some of the companies on the left, they may go for life science or med tech and not digital health. And of course, what I think we're going to see is actually that the companies, the SPACs are going to dip into the less mature companies. So like 56 is probably not too many of a pool. And so they'll probably start to go for the more younger companies as well. And we did look at the age in addition of these 170 million. And you do see that the, the bulk of them fall at around the seven to nine year old age, which actually feels decently comfortable, (laughs) but some of them really are younger, like more in the three to four year range, but it's pretty interesting. 
What we'll see most likely is more younger companies going or, or like less funded and more junior and less years going public. And that to me raises a real question of are these companies really ready for a pub, to be publicly traded? Because one thing we haven't really stressed that you should know is if you go public through a SPAC, you are then public. Either way, they're both routes to exit, you're, but you're, you're ending up public. Thinking about this, I think we'll definitely see folks dipping into smaller. And you do see that. I don't want to call out too many names here, but one of the companies that had been a target, announced a SPAC target, actually had only raised more like $30 million. Whatever that means for the maturity, I don't know. But definitely, I think we'll see folks dipping lower in the pool. So then moving on to the, the trade-off, if you are a management team and you're thinking about your options, right? So what is the difference? Why would you choose an IPO versus a SPAC? The first thing is valuation is different and you feel free to weigh in here, but an IPO, the investment bankers calculating your valuation and the SPAC you're negotiating with the SPAC sponsors. It's just different. Who do you trust more depending who you're working with, but it's a different process. Two is the guidance. In the IPO, you're seeing like a wisdom of the crowds. You're going in your roadshow, you're hearing everybody's comments. In the SPAC, it's a much smaller group that you're working with. You're working with the sponsors. They'll help you scale. And in most cases, they have really great backgrounds. And that's why they're able to raise this back in the first place. But it's just a different kind of thing. Next is rigor. We've talked about this a bit. IPO, you have to file an S1 with the SEC. This fact is a less rigorous evaluation, although that might change. And then last difference, or last difference noted here, at least, is public opinion. In an IPO, you cannot publicly forecast your financials. But in a SPAC, you can, and you can control your story and talk about your planned growth. So definitely different. And I think it really boils down to how much you trust your SPAC sponsors. Honestly, if you think that these are amazing people who will help you drive the growth of your company, you're probably in good hands. If you're being opportunistic and you don't know them as well and you don't trust them as well, it's probably a little more risky. But I don't know, I'll let other folks weigh in on the difference. These are just some of them. So really just tying this all up, what does it mean? Obviously, it's more digital health companies are going public. And I think SPACs are really helping that uh, or contributing to it, at least. And I think that is good for the industry because money in has to come out at some point. And so this enables people to get their investment back, invest again. And it also, I think, helps private investors, you, me and everyone else, be able to invest in digital health because those companies are now publicly traded and you can just buy them. As we've talked about, the SPAC targets are slightly less mature than the IPO candidates. And we believe the sponsors are going to have to dig a little deeper to find appropriately mature targets. And it may mean looking beyond just the dimensions of financing and, and time. And maybe there's other metrics you can use to judge how mature a company is. I think it's also a wake-up call for other organizations looking to acquire digital health companies. So some of the strategic uh, large healthcare, pharma, med tech that, that acquire, there's a lot more competition now. So that's going to change valuations. It's going to change the timing. If you're interested in a company, maybe you should move more quickly because there's a lot of people searching there for good out there for good targets. And then the last thing is SPAC versus IPO. It's a pretty big trade-off to make. So I would say get do your research. Talk to folks who've done it and figure out the trade-off, but be aware that in both cases, you're going to be publicly traded after. So only do it if you think you're ready. And that's it on this. Sorry. Thank you very much. And Keith, again, thank you. Incredible presentations. Now I'm, I'm going to 
stay a little bit with some of my questions to both of you on the basics, because SPACs, while both of you have said, they, hey, they've been around for decades, and what's it's a big deal suddenly. So I, I want to start still and stay, if it's all right with you, at the beginning and deal with some of the terminology that I think our listeners uh, should appreciate. Now, SPACs are often called blank check companies. And Keith and Sari, I'm wondering if you could offer your perspective of how that jargon or slang came into the mix and why. Keith, your perspective of why a blank check company, what does that mean? What does it mean to the people listening today? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Gil. And you know, when you think about it, that's really what it is, right? That, that at the end of the day, you've got uh, money that the vehicle is holding in trust for its IPO investors, and they really do have a blank check to go out and try to find target. And fundamentally, that's what it is. And the only real check on that is the IPO investors' ability to get their money back if they don't like the deal and to vote on the transaction. But uh, when you contrast this to to the IPO example that Sari gave, while the SPAC itself is technically going through an IPO, it's a fundamentally different process because the SPAC IPO is really an IPO of a vehicle that says, hey, we want to raise money to go find a target. And they can give you some information like healthcare or digital health or consumer or, you know, we're in the electronic vehicle space, whatever. But there's really no business. The financial statements are pretty simple. I think my 17-year-old could probably put them together for a SPAC at the end of the day versus an IPO for an operating business, which is incredibly complex. The risk factors are specific to that business. I'm going to take that question and your answer and swing over to Sari for a moment, <clears throat> because Keith, you're serving of counsel to the to one of the enterprises, generally the sponsoring enterprise. But your job is to make sure that the relationship is beneficial to um, the people you sit next to. And Sari, you're at a different side of the table in a way. You're all at the table together, both of you. But often, Rock Health is it's a venture capital firm. It's a private equity firm. The, it has different roles and the concepts of utilization of capital. When you hear the, the thought about blank check, or you're sitting with companies that you're sponsoring, and you're looking at a SPAC in the context of a blank check company, from your vantage point, what are you worried about as you proceed with a potential SPAC? Yeah, so I'd say where we sit generally is on two two parts. So either we will be looking with our portfolio at the trade-offs or we'll be actually on the advisory side helping potential SPAC companies find good targets. I think to me, I don't mind the term blank check. I think it raises a bit of like a red flag in a way, but that's a good thing, right? It just makes you be aware that this vehicle is a little different. To me, it's about the SPAC sponsors really, because they are the people who you're, you're going into partnership with just like any other acquisition. And they will continue in most cases to play an active role in your company. So thinking about it from the perspective of who are you partnering with? Are they, do they believe in your vision? Are they going to help you get to growth? And I've seen companies actually take a lower valuation, even than their prior valuation, in order to go in with a particular SPAC and make the financials work for everyone. And I think it's really about that trade-off of knowing who you're partnering up with versus going out into the wild and 
doing it yourself. And in many cases, also those executive, those folks who are SPAC sponsors are seasoned executives, either in the particular industry or just in general. And so they're doing this to also help a company scale and grow, which is something that founders often, or, or whoever the CEO is at the time, it's not always the founder, but they're still not necessarily experienced in, in running a publicly traded company. And so thinking about it from that perspective is really where I would focus. And both of you said something, you didn't use this word exactly, but you you implied, I infer, reputation of the SPAC driver becomes very important because Keith, your 17-year-old is preparing the balance sheet, apparently, or, or that environment. It, it, we're not really looking at a hard and fast balance sheet. I get the sense, and please correct me or define, that the level of due diligence with a SPAC is a different level of due diligence with an IPO. So could you talk a little bit about the attributes that you're looking for when you're considering a potential SPAC partner? And I'm going to split the question up. Keith, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the attributes of the, of the season partner, the, like the company that is driving this or the person who's driving this concept, their reputation. What are the attributes you look for? And because you're looking at the digital health space, many of those companies are the companies that may very well find themselves brought in through the SPAC. They're, they're smaller, perhaps their CEOs or management teams are less seasoned. They're not as well known in the marketplace. So I'm going to ask you, Keith, first from your perspective, when when people are thinking about a leader of a SPAC, like Bill Gates is driving, I think, Butterfly, or he's one of the people associated with Butterfly. He has a brand. He has a reputation. What, what do you What do you think the reputation should be? Who is a shining light who might be a sponsor of a, of a SPAC? And what are their qualities? Yeah. So look, I, I think that when we're working with targets and targets evaluating SPACs, and you're right, we do this on both sides. On the target side, we are myopically focused on the people, their backgrounds, their reputations. And it's not dispositive. Have they done a SPAC before? Is this their first time? What is their experience in business? How does that translate to this particular target? What efficiencies or what guidance do we think they can bring to the table to help the company as they enter the public markets? It's a range of those things. And I agree with Sari when roll, roll the tape back a little over a year and we were working with targets, we targets, advisors, everybody, investment banks, we looked at the SPAC as a means to an end. And it was just a vehicle to get public. And that was a naive view. And as the SPAC product has evolved, people have gotten much more sophisticated in thinking about this. And I agree with Sari, they're willing to take discounts to get with the right SPAC sponsor. And I would say it's even above the Bill Gates level. And this is something I think that will change as we come out of the pandemic. But we are seeing targets very much want to meet in person with the SPAC, not only the luminaries that are at the top, but the middle layer that they're going to be working with day in and day out, because it is much like selecting an investment bank for an IPO. These are people that you're going to have a relationship with through the process to get public. And then some of them are going to be on your board after you get public. And so there has to be a chemistry and a fit. And so I think, again, not just the top layer, but meeting with that middle layer in person and getting a touch and feel, I think, is is quite important. So clearly reputation, 
uh, proof and track record, getting along with people, chemistry, culture, suddenly all of these softer elements play a role from your perspective, Keith. Is that correct? I think it's critical. And, and yeah. Sari, I, I know that you and Rock Health are really champions of the innovator. And like any venture firm, I was in private equity. At some point, you're looking to exit. Th- this must be considered a, a vehicle for exit. As management, you know, economic management, what are you looking at? I'm going to ask you to divide your answer. I apologize for asking you to be a little split personality here. One, as the economic driver, what are you looking for? Then as a human being who's working with management, funding management, often on their board, what do you think they're looking for in terms of your reassurance to them and their decision-making process? I think it's all about the people and the trust. And is this going to work for you in the long run? I think that if I were, and my advice to companies, both on the portfolio side, as well as to people looking to acquire companies is only go public when you're ready, because the level of scrutiny goes up significantly. And I think some of the markers of being ready are really this idea of having recurring revenues, being able to forecast down the road and know where things are going, having your business processes and governance in place, being a grown-up in some level. And so uh, I think that both as a company considering going public through a SPAC or the companies looking at the targets, I would really look at a lot of those things. When you invest in early innovation, as we do at Rock Health, it's really more about uh, the ideas and the people and you know, the opportunity we see in the market. But when you're getting ready to go public, it's much more about, have you grown up? Do you have the processes? Can you forecast? Can you plan for what's going forward? And so uh, I would say on both sides of the table, in addition to the softer things that Keith said, those are the things I would look for. The only thing I was going to add to that is uh, I think it is important because a number of these processes that we're involved with, the targets, they're looking at a few things. And one they're reviewing a range of strategic alternatives, and that could be a sale. That could be combination with a strategic. That could be a SPAC transaction. That could be an IPO. But I think you got to lay all the alternatives out. And then even within the SPAC alternative, increasingly because of the supply-demand imbalance that Sari alluded to during her presentation, people are exploiting that. And they're typically doing a SPAC off type process where they're talking with multiple SPACs before making a decision. And in addition to these sort of chemistry points, the softer side, people are looking at the hard data, right? Because these SPACs, when they do their IPOs, they all have different terms. And then you have different SPAC sponsors that are willing to do different things in terms of what are they willing to give up? And that could be a portion of their promote, That could be a portion of their warrants. There are different things to do. But as part of the SPAC off, you've got to lay all of that out, do the math, right, on what does each deal mean for the management team? What does it mean for the target shareholders before making a decision on which one to go with? I'm going to take your ad there, Keith, and swing to Sari for just a moment on that. And and, and Sari, based on what Keith just said, I'm wondering do you have CEOs that you and Rock Health are working with, maybe seasoned CEOs who are starting a digital health venture with you? Often I know that you target leaders who have you know, great ideas and you give them the resources. Do you think like next week, you and your colleagues at Rock Health will be saying, we're, we're going to look at this CEO to do this venture, to come in take on this venture. And we're actually going to structure this to make it a very attractive SPAC target 
for a company out there yeah. because of what's going on? So we invest only in seed and series A. So very early on in the innovation cycle, we obviously stay closely connected with our portfolio as they grow. So many of our portfolio actually do fall now in that bucket of companies that are ready. But I would say we're not looking to to do a SPAC in any way, shape or form. We have an approach by a number of folks. So get in line. But at the moment, we're really just monitoring and looking to provide advice to folks as they navigate this. And of course, happy to help people who are want to explore who are the startups that could be a relevant fit. We're happy to do that as well, but we're not looking to start us back. We're, we're more interested in growing and nurturing those ideas from the beginning than in the financial vehicles and public companies and navigating that space. Thank you for that. That's an important clarification. And, and Keith, I, I want to swing back to you and ask you, you're, you and King and Spalding obviously are, are leaders in, the, in this conversation. So you probably have in your mind some sense of process that you go through for you know, the early conversations when you're looking at, you're sitting with a client, a, a SPAC is a consideration, either they're the sponsor of the SPAC or they're a target of a SPAC. What would be the sort of like the five questions that you would be running in your head for a prospective client as you sit down for the first time? So it, it, the first is typically around the size, and there's no perfect science to this. If, if a company, if you run the back of the envelope valuation, and the valuation would indicate a pre-money that's under 250, and some say 250, $250 million U.S., I would generally say either one, probably too early or two, maybe this could be something interesting, but you should think about it in combination with some other companies. So I think size is a is an early determinant. And there are various reasons for that. There's the trust rules and the SPAC that Sari talked about. There's just the public company overhead costs, which are real. There's just market risk, not qualifying for indices after you're public. Uh, frankly, there are some listing requirements on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, including public float requirements. It's just, it's not worth it when you bake in all of that. Can I ask you something on that one before? I noticed Levy asked about roll-ups of SPACs as well. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a, a couple of examples of that, but I'm actually not sure what's standard. So within digital health, there's been like a, a doubler, which was up health and cloud break. Right. And then I've also seen that some of the SPAC, some of the SPAC acquisition targets are using funding that they have to acquire other companies like ShareCare, Acquired, DocAI, I believe. Right. So I've seen that, but I'm curious, is there a viable strategy to do literally a SPAC roll-up where you would acquire a number of companies and pull them together? Yeah, it, it, it's been done in some various industries. And you mentioned a couple in digital health where there have been acquisitions that were done in tandem with the SPAC, there you know are a couple. There's one that we're involved in, which which is in the AI space, where it's essentially three companies, you know, coming together. So I think it is a viable alternative, which which frankly leads to the next key thing, Gil. I would use as a screen, and that is public company preparedness and where are you on audits, because that's you got to have that ready to go. Where are you on public company infrastructure? And if it's a roll-up, all of those same questions for the target or the targets, and what would the integration plan be? What should we think about for a realistic timeline you know, for the SPAC transaction? And how does that relate to integration and public company readiness? Because I've seen too many of these situations where 
people put the cart in front of the horse yes. and the company's just not ready for prime time. And, and that can be quite dangerous because, sorry, said it, you roll the tape forward and this thing ends and you're a public company. And you're like, oh, gosh, now the dog caught the bus. What are we going to do? Yeah, I think that you brought up some very key factors. I think a lot of our, our listeners today, our participants today, don't think about the corporate structure. They're very much focused on the idea that they're trying to champion and bring forward. And they don't realize often that what both of you said, their reputation, their voice as leaders, their track record as leaders, um, what's the corporate structure and governance? Do they have a sense of financials? Do they have a sense of what it would look like when they integrate. These are key points. I would recommend, first of all, everybody listen to this recording again and again. And not just for SPACs, by the way. I would say in terms of structuring for growth and financial viability. I just said also to Levy that the conversation that was brought on the term roll-up, which is many companies being acquired by another entity and brought together as a bigger entity to create more value. As they say, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts the roll-up. That's a separate webinar in itself, Levy, for Israeli entrepreneurs to consider in the future. It doesn't happen often from Israel. Maybe it's something that companies really should consider to their advantage. So I want to ask one last question before we get to the last sort of statement from each of you. So just a quick answer on this particularly. You've talked quite a bit about issues that are related to structure, to reputation, to finance. I'd like to ask you both, what would be your biggest warning bell if someone came into your office and they wanted to speak to you about championing a SPAC and using capital to obviously to target a company and you're listening to them and you're saying, that's a challenge. I, I don't think this is going to work out for the people you're targeting or for yourself. Let me start with Sari. Sari, what would be for you as, as an enterprise that invests early in companies, if someone came in and said, look, we'd like to speak to you about your company X, because you obviously have a lion's share in many cases with management, what would be a warning bell? I think for me, it goes back to that size thing. I I worry about that a lot because when you see the mismatch and Keith now made it exacerbated because he pointed out that some companies don't even mention healthcare and then they do go for healthcare. And what well, the reason I'm worried about that is because I can see, talking about rolling the tape forward, I can see a risk where company management, startup management needs money they get approached by a SPAC. They hadn't thought about going public, but they're like, you know what? Here's a company willing to acquire us. And this is great. I solve all our problems. And then they're not ready. And in a year or two, a couple of bad apples who are good companies, but not ready for prime time oh. kind of make the whole industry. Everyone's like, oh, this is one of these jokesters in digital health. So that's where I'm concerned is that companies will be opportunistic because of the funding. And then not really be prepared for it. And that'll create some negativity down the road. Thank you, Sari. Keith, what's your big warning bell? Yeah, same concept in that the, the SPAC you know, has an inherent conflict, right? The, the 20% promote that the sponsor has, they are incentivized to do a deal because if they don't do a deal, in my, the example I showed earlier, that's $8 million that they might as well have just opened up the window and dumped it out and it's gone with no deal. So if they do a deal, not only do they get that, but then they get this 20% promote, which is going to you know, pay a big premium. So I, 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 I tend to agree that the biggest risk is that you move forward with the deal and the deal doesn't make economic sense. I, there, there are structures out there. I mentioned the pipe. I do think the pipe is an important 
validation tool and there's a symbiotic relationship between the pipe and the SPAC redemption process as well. That is important to go through as a discipline. I won't get into all the mechanics, but there are ways some of these SPACs come with forward purchase commitments, which mitigate the need for a pipe. I encourage all targets to go through the pipe process, get that extra validation on value. And if you don't get the validation, that tells you something. You can always decide you go through the pipe process and you know what, this is a bad idea. There are other things that you can do versus do the SPAC transaction. Because again, you just come back to that principle. Do you want to be a public company? And do you think you got the right valuation? I I, uh, want to remind people that both Keith and Sari are on social media. You're welcome to follow them on LinkedIn. Sari is also on Twitter, as is Raquel, as King and Spaulding. I follow both organizations. I follow these people. Just following them, you're going to continue to learn a tremendous amount. So now to the last question. Sari and Keith, if in a sentence or two, you could give sort of your headline words to people interested in SPACs. What do you feel the big important takeaway is for the community we have? It's predominantly health innovation, digital health. It's your sweet spots. So what's your sort of sentence of advice? Sure, I can go first. I think we talked a lot about the trade-offs and the, the pros and the cons and the risks. I would say there's still great opportunities in SPACs, so, so I don't want to make it seem like it's all bad. I think it's really good for companies who are ready to go public to be able to go public. And I would say if you're not in that size range, maybe look at those companies who have been sponsored by, who have gone through the SPAC transaction. Maybe they're ready for an acquisition, given they have a new funding and they can, and you can join in forces with them that way. Because I think that our industry does need more exit options and ability for private individuals to invest on the on the public exchanges. And so I'd say it's definitely a good thing in some ways and we don't want anyone to take away too much negativity, but do look into it carefully, both in terms of the people that you'd be partnering up with, as well as the vehicle and whether it's the right fit for you. Thank you, Sarah. Keith, your headline words? So look, for me, I, I think that the SPAC product uh, is a great innovation. I'm excited it's taken off the way that it has. And look, in a lot of ways, it is venture capital for the masses. Uh, if you go back to the, the slide that Sari had about where people are for SPACs versus IPOs, it's happening earlier. And the valuations are typically better than a Series C or a Series D round. As long as a company has the infrastructure and is ready to be public, it can be a very attractive alternative and something I think that should be on the range of alternatives that companies are evaluating. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you would like to explore episodes further, Go to our website, www.facesofdigitalhealth.com and to dive into the pool of other healthcare digital health related content, visit the Health Podcast Network's website as well. Stay tuned.